I got a couple of apologies to make before we start. One of them is for the freaky crisis that just happened in the front row. You see, when you have to speak, it's essential to bring your notes. Yeah, they're not in the van. And I don't have a good memory. So this is going to be ratchet. This is going to be fun. That's all right. That's all right. Do we specialize in that? Listen, if we were trying to impress people, we would have shut down a long time ago. It just so happens, and I never do this, I promise. I never email anybody my sermon notes before the event, ever. Not even my wife. Okay, come here. Wait, 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 wait. Let me see if your phone is bigger than mine, because I have what I sent you. No, nope, you got the same dorky phone as me. Thank you. I'm going to tell a story, and we're going to laugh. Not at you. Yeah, so I never, ever, ever email anyone my notes before the event, but Shay said this week, because she's doing a youth class, she says, hey, if I knew what you were talking about, it would be really helpful. So I'm like, oh, God. So I sent her my sermon notes in advance, and I'm going to have to recover all of my thoughts today from that email. So this is going to be a lot of fun. If I can find it again, I just had it. What happened? Shay! I'm not, I'm not joking. Something just happened. Uh, Hang on, hang on. Oh, we got plenty to fill with. This is actually really funny. You got to lean into stuff like this. This doesn't happen all the time. This wouldn't happen on TV. I found it, but Bo's a good man. Bo's broke into a full sweat running around the parking lot looking for my sermon notes. But my apology is more related to my flip-flops. I had an accident yesterday, and it's so embarrassing turning 43. Because you go places with your kids to play and have fun. And you ask, hey, that climbing wall looks like a lot of fun. Is it rated for adults? Oh, yeah. No sweat, dude. Climb to the top of what surely was a 50-foot climbing wall. Wade Lynn says, no way. It's probably 20 feet. Climb to the top. Felt pretty smug about that. Let go into the foam pit, apparently at the wrong angle. So I guess it's pretty standard to put concrete floor underneath the foam pit. So I don't think I broke anything, but I can't put any pressure on it. So I'm going to apologize for my flip-flops. However, if you're going to wear flip-flops to church on a Sunday, be sure they're cool and they come from the little town in Colombia where Pablo Escobar was gunned down. <laughs> from Medellin, Colombia to Austin, Texas. I'm telling you, I'm not making this crap up. This is just how life rolls in Austin. So welcome to Austin New Church. We're going to have fun today one way or another, even if I have to basically... See, for a guy that suffers from ADD, I write my notes out, every single word, including the so and the and, because you guys are way too exciting and attractive and fun to look at. I get so distracted, I don't remember my name. So that's why I do that, and so this is going to be a challenge because I don't have much of a memory, but we're going to do this anyway. All right, so we're glad you're here, and I really, really mean that. As a staff, I've been reminded this week um, how grateful I am to be part of this team and this staff. We, we actually um, work really hard to create a space on Sundays where you can come in and where you can feel like... Um, Uh, something is being said or something is being communicated, something is being done with your kids, something is being sung over you. We we actually work pretty hard to set the table for you in in some good ways. Um, It's probably the leanest pastor, teacher, speaker team you've ever sat under on a Sunday. And if you're visiting, maybe that's just, um, just for fun as you leave town and head back to your dumpy city in America that's not as cool as ours. I'm just saying. Um... We make lots of jokes about that. But this is the leanest team I've ever been part of. I I take great pride in talking to people about how we're organized. 
You guys know we have no administrative staff, right? We have no secretaries, right? We rent a front room of a little farmhouse for our office space. It's really where we have Tuesday meetings. It's a very lean and stripped-down team, and I, I have to say I'm proud of that. Um, it's a bivocational team, almost entirely, which means the financial burden isn't on you to feed all of our kids because some of us have done more than our job of bringing kids into the world, right? <laughs> Between the Hatmakers and the Morrises, we've got 10 rugrats running around. Some of them are driving and graduating high school, I know, but still they're, they're rugrats. But my point is, we're a very lean, bivocational, teaching, preaching, leading team. And we've done, all of us, other spectacular things with our lives that we have left behind to come and do this thing here for you, with you, uh, in your presence, among you, here in Austin, Texas. And so it's, a, it's, it's been a fun journey. I love talking about it, but it's been reminded of, of that this week. Uh, one of the, the, the reasons is because last Sunday we had a new partner class, and it's always so much fun bringing in new people and making that explanation for the first time. One of the realities about being at ANC, and I had a conversation this morning with some friends from Durham, um, there's always new people here. Did you know that on any given Sunday, it's nothing to have a dozen or more new faces in this building? It's just the nature of ANC. We all know where that comes from. It's not coming from Trey or Jason, but we'll... Uh, We'll just deal with the wind as it blows. But seriously, it's nothing to have a couple of visitors here on a Sunday. If you've been here for more than 10 minutes, we're counting on you to pitch in and add your flair and style to who we are because it's an ever-growing, transitioning, changing sort of place, right? The only people, I'll teach you a secret, if you want to meet new people at ANC, just show up 10 minutes before service starts. I start 100% of my conversations with new people this way. Hey, I know you're new. Guess how? Uh, you never met me before? No, actually, because it's not 1030 and you're sitting down and you're reading that bulletin like there's something in there that's important to know. And you're showing up early and now you're feeling super awkward because there's not a soul in the building. And you thought Jen Hatmaker's church would be bigger than that, right? Just saying, if you want my secret, you want to meet and connect new people, show up 10 minutes before the game starts and you'll find the place empty except for a couple of people. Super fun. Crazy things happen. Okay, so we're two weeks into a new series on 1 Corinthians. Um, what's interesting is that Trey mentioned last week that well, this might be a four or five week series. I'm pretty sure I can stretch this out to 10. He actually didn't read the second page of an email that I sent, which, di- which basically outlined all 10. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for more like nine or 10 weeks. So that's a warning in case you were looking forward to something else, you know, Dianetics or whatever we were going to study after the book, <laughs> first, first Corinthians. But let's review. In the, first, in the last few months, we have looked at, watch, the life of Christ as recorded by Matthew, and we took forever to get through that. Then we moved immediately onto the life of the early church, right? That community that sort of leapt off of the, you can't say pages because it wasn't written down yet, but leapt out of the oral tradition of the ministry of Christ into new little churches in the book of Acts, right? Focusing on Peter and then on Paul. So we've studied the, the words and the life of Christ, the movement of Christ. Then we were in the early church, and now we're moving into one of the letters that Paul wrote back after having planted the church at Corinth offering another layer of, of, of corrective, another layer of instruction around this, this event of God putting on skin in the man Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's review. Why did Paul write the epistles? It's just a fancy word for letter. We talked to each other at ANC, so don't panic. Why did Paul write these letters? Anyone? To encourage. To encourage. Nailed it. Yeah, what else? To disciple. Is that what you said? Okay, young believers? To correct. Right. Yeah. Anyone else? Is it obvious or is it apparent to us that he knew the people to which he was writing? 
He knew these people, didn't he? He, he? he greeted them often by name and dug into their personal lives and asked, you know, hey, so how's your mom doing kind of thing. So he knew he was writing. He lived among them. Paul is writing to communities of people who had gathered around the message of Christ, trying to figure out how do we, how do we then live, the famous words of Francis Schaeffer. How, how do we actually make a life out of all of this stuff that you're talking about? I, I would say, Dale said to encourage, and you said to correct. I would say it's pretty much those two things. Paul basically wrote to encourage and to correct. In other words, keep doing this, stop doing that, that sort of a thing. But this is interesting because we're going to have to really use our thinking cap now. This is not like reading the red letters in the Gospels. We're going to actually have to do some scholarly work and figure out what of the things that Paul is writing is a direct overlay into our communities and what are the things that are not. So if you come from a Baptist, Central Texas, Bible sort of background, you're about to freak out and about to panic. Just hang with me for a second. This means that some of the material can be directly applied to our context, some of it, a great, a great percentage of it. But it also means that some of it can't. Paul, in some cases, was, was addressing specific cultural issues that were out of line in particular churches. Now, all things in Scripture can be trusted, but not all things come into direct overlay without some work of understanding, and in some cases without some work of simply saying, that's not for us for now. So panic, panic now. Hit the red button. It's under your chair. That'll drop you to uh, First Baptist of, uh, I don't know, Whispering Hollow. And where are we? This is Whispering Hollow. This is Shady Hollow. I don't, I don't mean to be silly, but I'm being honest. We are going to have to do some work here. All of Scripture is written to encourage and to build community around the event of God in Jesus Christ, but not all of it comes into direct application for us. Not all in the same way. Watch this. You would be a fool if you took and tried to make contemporary doctrine out of ancient Hebrew poetry. What's the ancient Hebrew poetry preserved in our Bibles? Psalms, what else? I was thinking more of Song of Solomon. Thank you. Yeah. You're going to struggle if you're going to try to create Christocentric doctrine out of the words of ancient poets who are writing with deeply, deeply different and different sort of perspectives. Likewise, you'd be crazy to ask the ladies of A and C to all sit on one side and cover their heads when they pray. Yet Paul says to do that in one case. You get what I'm saying? The question really isn't how do we parse. The question is where do we cut, right? How do we draw the line? And churches will divide and subdivide and reorganize and redivide over these issues. It would be silly to enforce Paul's uh, uh, sort of ideas on the prohibition of shaving heads, or women particularly shaving their head. That's culturally granular, and it's highly specific. And I would suggest it's not intended for all believers in all places at all times, and I'm not sure there's anyone who would give much of an argument to that. But that's an easy one. It's going to get tougher. The same man who wrote later in Ephesians 5 that we are to live in joint submission one to another. You want a vision for marriage? That's your vision for marriage. Joint submission one to another. This is the same guy who would later claim that there's no longer any meaningful division among us. There's no way to divide and to understand us as separate, right, in Galatians 3. He would be tragically misunderstood if we assumed that his direct suggestion to a particular situation in one of the churches he planted applies to all of us if we just simply say, take it and lay it over. Women would be silent. They would have their heads covered. There would be all sorts of cultural things that I don't think are the gospel. We would have to lay them over seamlessly. Now, you can do that if you like, but I don't think that's the way forward. It's going to take a great work of of wisdom, and here's what I would say. Don't fear the person who does the work of interpretation. Fear the person who tries to do it alone. Let 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 me unpack that for you. 
Scripture is a collection of people's writings and thoughts and eyewitness accounts and poetry and history and narrative and apocalyptic rendering. It's all of those things that's produced by a community designed for community consumption. There was never a vision in the ancient's mind for you to sit on your patio at 6 o'clock in the morning with a little espresso and figure out how God works all alone. It was never in the perspective of the writers of of the word. This is community, articulation, it's yearning, it's how do we talk about this, what do we say about this, I'm paired, my phone's going to go off because I won't know how to get back to this email, I'm just, that wasn't in the notes, that's for free. But this is a community who's yearning to understand how can it be that the son of David is this, but he didn't topple the government, and how do we, and so all of that is a communal yearning, and it's never going to be fully understood by the person who tries to grasp it in their own mind. So don't fear the interpreter, all things are interpreted. Sorry if you're not aware of this, but the postmodern sociological reality is this, and it's not really in question. Here's the deal. Everything is propaganda, and everything has an agenda. There is no speech that doesn't come filtered through the person speaking. There is no scripture that you can get back to, no truth that you can get back to without saying it's being interpreted through a particular life experience in a particular community. It's all designed for communal consumption. Now, I'm scaring some of you. Some of you are like, you're hanging on. Listen. The interpretive community is the body of Christ, and not just ANC in South Austin. The body, as it's, coll- as it's connected to that mysterious, unbroken thread of God's witness in the earth since the beginning. So don't fear the interpreter. Fear the one who interprets alone. You'll never get it right alone. My agenda will be too strong. If I can't hear it through Trey's mind, if I can't hear it through Drew's voice, if I can't hear it with Bo's perspective, if I can't hear it through David's wisdom, then it's not to be trusted. And so just know that as we, as a teaching, leading, preaching team, sit with this kind of scripture, we, we have great angst about how to apply these things because this, there's a lot of weight as we look at scripture and say, this comes into now, this does not. And we do that in the collected wisdom of the body of Christ. So ANC is far from perfect, and you know that. You already know this intuitively. You probably know that nothing is perfect. But if you haven't already learned this firsthand, we will let you down in one way or another. I promise. Reading the letters of Paul should encourage us because these churches were perfect examples of although having been founded by the Apostle Paul, still stumbled, still limped, still misunderstood, still misplaced meaning, and still went right back to their tribal boundaries. Now, the division we're going to look at, this is a bit of a long intro. Sorry, Trey, you can cut all this out. But um, the division we're going to look at today is a bit of a fickle and funny one. It honestly is a little strange for most of us. It's a little silly, but it's a universal challenge of the body of Christ who had listens to different voices. You see, they're going to break down in the church of Corinth on some who are we listening to kinds of things. And I know nobody around ANC says, well, I'm of Trey. Well, I'm of Lamar. I know that's not something that happens around here. But let's open the word. Thank God the words are on the screen, and I can't lose that on the way to church. 1 Corinthians, 10, or 1, Corinthians 1, verse 10. Let's read this. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you. Right to the point, huh, Paul? But that you be perfectly united in in mind and in thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, which is another word for Peter. So another says, well, I follow Christ. That's the smug one, right? That's, well... I follow Jesus, right? That's the person who names their church. This is baby Jesus' church. All y'all can fight about what? No. I follow Christ. Yeah, you're my buddy. 
Paul says, is Christ divided in verse 13? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. Now, (laughs) I'm just saying, not all of this is doctrine. Hang on for the ride, okay? Hang on, hang on. There's going to be a point where Paul's, one of his epistles says, I'm not really sure if I've told you this before, but just saying. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's looking at a church who's now just months after he left saying, well, guess what? I'm on Jesus' team. Oh, yeah, I'm on Apollos' team. Well, I'm on Paul's team, and they're breaking down into factions. If you stick closely to the thrust of Paul's sort of pen in the book of Corinthians, I think the meta-narrative is unity. He's writing to a church who needs to be unified and stay focused on one goal. The enduring unity of the brother and the sisterhood is, is, is of the utmost importance to Paul. Why? Because he knew intuitively that an onlooking world would look for one set of proofs that what they preach is actually what is, and that is how do they live together? Can these people in an emerging Roman, Greco, Judaic world, can they live together in peace and harmony or can they not? Because it doesn't matter to some degree what else you say. If you cannot live in unity, all the rest of it goes away, and Paul knew this. So his obsession was unity. And in 1 Corinthians, it's the biggest theme. Whatever the particular tribe or cultural allegiance of the hearer was, and there were many in the ancient world, it didn't matter. Jesus and then now Paul both preach a gospel that would fold them all. Every single expression, every single identity will fold them all. It will literally dissolve them all into a new whole, which was the new humanity first fully glimpsed in Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way. And this won't be on the screen, but just listen. In one of his other letters to the church in the Galatian region, he says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to his promise. Now that has almost zero impact on us today. We're not even sure what it means to be an heir of Abraham today. But listen, did you catch that? The most jealously protected commodity of the Jewish nation, the ability to say that I'm an heir of Abraham, Paul just conveyed it to the whole world. He just conferred it on anyone who's baptized in Christ. He just blew up the entire reservation. He just moved all the fence lines. That doesn't sound very revolutionary, but I'm going to guarantee you that got some play on local local Jewish talk radio of the day. Paul, like Jesus before him, came to denounce all divisions, every wall and every tribal fault line that separates us from each other, ultimately separates us from God. And there's your key theological point. You can't be near to God and understand what he's doing in the world if you say, yeah, but the Sumerians are out. You can't be near what God is doing in your world if you say, yeah, but, you know, the French. Or, yeah, well, it wasn't that many years ago when we said, yeah, but people of particular hue, yeah, mm, that's not really what God is doing. You can't, the tragedy isn't, it isn't a broken belief system in and of itself. It's that you cannot be near to what God is doing in the earth and still exist within these divisions. There is a brand new hum- humanity initiated in Christ, one that leaves no one out, one that makes nothing of difference, one to which all belong, even the weak, the foreigner, the refugee, the undesirable, the addict, the confused, the immature, the self-righteous, the outcast, all are considered to be part of our concern because this is a new humanity that God is building. Think about this. I say this often. I'm so sorry. I don't have very many 
chops. This is one of them. Nationality is nothing in the world of Jesus and in Paul. Nationality is nothing. Jesus walks right into Samaria where he's not supposed to go and he sits down and he talks to a woman who he was not supposed to address. He crossed the uncrossable cultural fault line. And that, that fault line is designed to keep bad and good separate, see? You can't mix the good with the bad. This is the perennial obsession of the religious system of Jesus' time. You can't put wool and cotton together. You can't put blood and meat together. You can't put clean and unclean, no disease and no health together. It all needs to be separated. No wonder they misunderstood Jesus. Nationality is nothing in the new humanity that Jesus is building, and neither is language. Language is nothing either. Watch this. When the followers of Christ are gathered in the upper room in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends on them, giving them the gift of tongues. And what I mean by tongues, I don't mean a bunch of people saying crazy stuff in unintelligible ways and yelling and squawking and doing the things that some of us have grown up with. I mean people who were literally speaking the language of those who were listening. The gospel went infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. It knows no, no, no nationality and it knows no language. If you have to open your mouth and speak in a language that the person next to you needs to understand so that they know that God loves them too, that's what it'll take because there's no language structure, there's no language boundary in the world of Jesus. Now, if you grew up in the Pentecostal church, that's a very different read on Acts 2 than what you probably grew up listening to. That would be me. You see, the new humanity initiated in Christ accepts no boundaries. The presence of God among us will not enrich our endeavors and pass over those of the rest. It's always been about all the families of the earth, according to Genesis 12. So remember, the Apostle Paul is the guy who will eventually dissolve all of this encouragement, all of this teaching and correction. He will dissolve it all into one concept. Does anybody remember the thinking in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is the word. The greatest single piece of poetry probably ever written is found in 1 Corinthians 13, and it reads like this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if Jen would have been writing the book of Corinthians, she would have put I period, am period, nothing period. (laughs) How many of you guys have relearned how to write after reading Jen Hatmaker? I love overuses of commas and overuses of... Short sentences with lots of periods and new... Anyway, that's just me. I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. I'm remembering Will and Jessica's wedding right now. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. How's that working out for you, Will? I'm just saying. Man... Paul, take it easy. You're killing us here. Love does not delight in the evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love, period, never, period, fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, writes Paul, what is in part disappears. When I, am a, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I become a man, I put away the childish, put the childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror that we shall see face to face one day. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, for even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is Paul's manifesto of how to do community. Now watch, how to do community in the presence of division. 
This is Paul's manifesto on how to live together even when I'm of Jesus. Well, I'm of Trey. Oh, yeah, well, I'm of Lamar. I just love picking on Trey and Lamar. When dealing with division, watch this. What do we do? We prefer the other, like it says in 1 Corinthians 13. When dealing with difference opinion, a difference of opinion about who's our favorite leader and what message we prefer, what do we do? We don't bring dishonor or shame where differences prevail, however glaring those may be. That's what we do. What do we do when we've been hurt by other members of this so-called community of faith that's supposed to bring healing and wholeness to our lives but doesn't? What do we do? We keep no record of wrongs done to us. We release. We show kindness and patience with people who see the world differently than we do. And here's the thing that strikes me, and this always strikes me. The way we believers hold what we believe is so clenched, it's so locked, it's so airtight, it's so black and white, it's so definite, it's so certain that I think Paul's admonition is almost like when Jesus says, oh yeah, love your enemies too. And it's just like, I can't even love my spouse. How am I going to love my enemies? Paul says, oh yeah, you want to live in community? Here's how it works. Nobody gets this right, at least not all the time. Probably not even most of the time. But this is nonetheless the standard that we live by. Let me see if I can simplify this as much as I can in in, in language that we can understand. When it comes to doing life together, which is of course the obsession of Paul, which is of course why he writes. When it comes to doing life together, we are to be observers, not judges. And I know that's so pop culture and so simple, but it's true. Judges of the content of our own hearts, for sure but not that of others. The degree to which we manage or stay in the seat of observer, now watch this, is directly proportional to our fulfillment in community. The degree to which we occupy the seat of judge correlates directly to our fulfillment in community. Does that make sense? The degree to which we are able to walk in love with the holy other, meaning everyone we're in community with, is the degree to which we will be happy and fulfilled And I say holy other because that is where we primarily encounter God, in the other. Everyone you meet, says Pete Rollins, has the potential to save your soul or to be an instrumental part of saving your soul, to be part of that story of a deeper awareness of what God is doing because he's up to something in their lives. If this faith community, or if any other for that matter, is unfulfilling to you, ask yourself this question. Am I sitting in the seat of judge? Am I all about getting my needs met? Number one reason people we hear as pastors why people switch and go to other places, why my needs weren't getting met. Ask yourself this question, am I acting out of anger, impatience, judgment, or am I observing, fully engaged, learning from all, especially those who are different from me? Let me just put it this way. You can have all the gifts. You can know all the things. You can save all the orphans. You can give everything you have to the poor. You can have social justice as a middle name. You can be the best leader, the most talented mentor, the most spiritual counselor, the fastest learner, the most clairvoyant friend. I don't know why I wrote that. That's dumb. How did I ever spell the word clairvoyant? Oh, yeah, spell check. You can have all this stuff, and if you do not love, and if you do not have the posture that literally prefers the other, that puts their interests ahead of your own, that takes their weakness and their limitations into consideration when you decide how to live in your freedom, 
If you do not live in that kind of posture, you can have all the other things and fail to get it. And community for you will be a place of breaking and disappointment. Any one of a million reasons to opt out of community will convince you to walk away from all of the hypocrisy and all of the imperfection, all of the work and the struggle to get along, and you would be right. Our community is full of all of those things, and you would be alone. And that is not the point. And that is not where you will thrive. And it is not okay. Because you were made for more than that. Unity is the meta theme of the book of 1 Corinthians, but unity implies that we're going to have to get there going through profound difference. Now, I don't know what you need to hear today. Whatever it is, I hope you're hearing it. Paul implores us today to allow no divisions among us. Let that sink in. Let that land. No divisions among us. Let's agree to let nothing come between us. I'd like to pray for that today, but let me warn you, this is a prayer that Jesus will probably answer. You know the difference? Oh, Jesus, take away my desire to make money. Just make me holy. You think he's going to answer that one? Mm, that's going to take a while. Oh, Jesus, that Cadillac next to me at the light. Mm-hmm. Just lay my hands on my window, just claiming that thing, right? Think God's going to answer that question? Answer that prayer? Or here's my favorite one as a local pastor. Oh, Jesus, use my church to do everything you need to do in this city because we're just sold out for you. And Jesus says, yeah, you're part of it, but I'm never going to give you everything you need for Austin, Texas, because that's beyond the point. These are prayers that good luck with. But there are a few, if you dare pray them, I can promise results. If your prayer is, Lord, make us one, Here's my prediction. Before the day's out, someone will torque you off, will cut you off, will cross you, will challenge you, will wear flip-flops from Medellin, someone will do something, and you will have to figure out, now what? Because they just stepped on a very important wire for me. My prayer is that a church, we would be the kind of church that would be resilient in the face of difference. We are not homogenous. We are not one thing. Look at us. We come from all over, from as far north as Dallas or north of the water, as far south as San Antonio, South Kyle. We are very different people and we're obsessed with our zip codes. This prayer is going to put you in a place to actually have to respond in love. Because unity is not the result of homogeneity. Unity is the result of a community who is persistent in working through and saying, I will sit next to you. I will partake of the same meal. We will be in the same space, although we look at the world profoundly differently. Yet we remain unified in this one cause, which is Christ crucified in a world that needs to know that.